Thank you, Carl. It's a, a real honor and pleasure to be with y'all. Uh, just want to take a moment and thank uh, Carl for inviting me and uh, uh, express my profound thanks uh, to you as a congregation. He's actually been to our church a couple of times and uh, ministered there through the years. And I met Carl about, uh, I guess, over 20 years ago at one of the first Twin Lakes meetings in, outside of Jackson, Mississippi, and immediately sensed a kindred spirit. And through the years, he's uh, done something that is sort of rare in my experience. He's given me very good advice. And uh, I really appreciate that, Carl. We've enjoyed having uh, Carrie uh, at our congregation recently to do our ladies' conference, and Scotty and Carrie are dear friends, and we're so excited to, um, to be here with you this, this evening. Why the, uh, why the glory of Christ? Well, I was walking around downtown Savannah last summer, and I saw Carl was on the phone, and uh, he asked me to do the Bible conference, and I said, sure, what would you like me to teach on? He said, what are you reading? What are you studying? And before I really thought, I said, well, the character of God, the, the glory of Christ. And he said, that would be great. And so uh, I hope I haven't bit off more than I can chew. The reason for that is, is I have, we have a dear mutual friend that is a pastor, and he encouraged me to uh, get back into the Puritans. We, as Carl mentioned, had five children and uh, finally sort of getting many of them out of the house and graduated and all of that. So not dealing with, you know, 32 basketball games in a month, that sort of thing. Had a little more time on my hands, and a dear friend suggested just read three pages a day. And as a young man in ministry, I'd read a lot of the Puritan John Owen. If you know John Owen, he was a in the 17th century, England, during the English Civil War, was a prominent theologian and figure. Uh, he was a Puritan, uh, grew up in sort of lower nobility in England, moved around in exalted circles, you might say, was a regent of Oxford, preached before Parliament, was uh, Oliver Cromwell, if you know that name, he was his uh, uh, chaplain in his military campaigns, many of them. The thing he's remembered for, though, if you're a minister in the PCA generally, is he's written 16 volumes. And I have that set, as long as the seven volumes on Hebrews. And so to take that advice, I picked up the first volume. And I thought, well, I'll start with number one, and was on the glory of Christ. And as I read those three pages a day, what I was confronted with through the year uh, that took me to get through it is... Uh, you have a man here who's obviously a lot better educated than I am and a lot better mind, but he's looking at Jesus from every conceivable angle. The, the book itself was divided into two sections, basically on the person of Christ and then meditations on his glory. And what I was confronted with in that uh, study, pondering, was the fact that, you know, as a minister of the gospel and certainly we want at Eastwood, the church I'm a part of, Jesus to be at, at the front of everything. How little I actually pondered uh, Jesus' glory. And it made me think back to a passage I ponder quite a bit, which is uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, that says, Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race before us, fixing our eyes on Christ. 
What does that mean to fix your eyes on Christ? Obviously not by sight. That would be a violation of the second commandment. But certainly as he's outlined the writer in the previous passage, it's by faith and assurance of those things hoped for and the conviction of those things not seen. And I think that's key to finishing well in the Christian pilgrimage, not growing bitter or brittle as he goes on to outline the downfalls the, the peril that you face in your pilgrimage. And so, uh, to me, this is a very important study, and I thought the place we would begin this evening is looking at Jesus' high priestly prayer. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 17, and I'll read verses uh, 1 through 5, and also 22 through uh, 24 as part of the, the sermon text. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, so that all to whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus, whom you have sent." I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word this evening. Father in heaven, we give you praise that you have put your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon the eternal throne, that you have bestowed upon him all authority in heaven and earth, and he has granted us the ministry of God the Spirit. We pray as our great priestly king that the Spirit of God would be our teacher this evening, that he would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to comprehend. Amen. When I was a college student, I uh, spent a lot of time listening to uh, John MacArthur tapes. He was my first exposure, if you know, of his ministry out in Los Angeles, expository preaching. I'd never heard anything like that before, and particularly uh, cassette tapes back then. You'd mail them back and forth, and I was listening to his tapes on how to study the Bible. And one of the things he recommended was that you would read uh, seven chapters a day for a month. And he suggests you begin with the Gospel of John, and you, for the first month you read seven, the first seven chapters, the second month you read uh, chapters 8 through 14, and the, the last month you read chapters 15 through 21, and you do that, and in doing so you, get, you won't forget what you've, you've read, which is a common problem. And so certainly I did that, and it's the only book of the Bible I've ever done it for, and the, the verse that stands out to me that I remember and ponder and really appreciate is the well actually the last verse of verse 16 and Jesus is saying these things I've spoken to you 
so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. What a wonderful summary of the Christian pilgrimage. Jesus says, if you're identified with me, your uh, realistic expectation of the Christian life ought to be one of trouble, of pain, of heartache, of sorrow. But that is related to your external circumstances. Internally, you can have absolute certainty and peace because Jesus says with a very triumphant tone, I have overcome the world. So he gives the command to take courage. That triumphant tone continues through this, which is, of course, Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter 17. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, one of the things you'll know is that the first 12 chapters or so deal with Jesus' first three years of ministry. But when you hit chapter 13 to chapter 17, this is his upper room discourse. This is the last few hours that he spends with his apostles. It's very important. And the end of that, of course, is this prayer. We find Jesus getting away by himself, praying frequently in the Gospels, but you really don't know what he was praying. Here you have the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament, and he apparently prayed this out loud in the presence of the apostles, and they remembered it. And it's easily divided into three sections. The part that's pertinent to us this evening is the fact that Jesus begins that prayer with speaking about his glory, and he ends that prayer speaking about his glory. In fact, he mentions the word glory either in the verbal form to glorify or the word actually itself to glory no less than eight times. And so we're talking about Jesus' glory as important to your life and why is it so vital? Well, obviously it's important because as Jesus faces the gauntlet of the next few hours and the cross and the crucifixion and the suffering under the wrath of God, all the rejection by the religious leadership, all the physical pain that he will experience, his eyes are focused upon his own glory and that the sharing of that glory with God's people. So it's obviously something that is very important. And he's praying for a certain group of people, people that the Father has given him, that they would be able to share in that vision of his glory. And so the good thing about Jesus' prayer is that you know that they are always answered. And so who are the people he is praying for? It seems to me that the obvious conclusion, and John Owen certainly points to this in one of his essays, is that it's those who are focused on Jesus' glory. That is the chief sign that you're in that group, that group that the Father has given the Son. John Owen says, No man will ever behold the glory of Christ by sight hereafter who does not in some measure behold it by faith here in this world. So you hear what he's saying. He's saying, if by faith, uh, as the writer of Hebrews, we can see Jesus in all of his excellencies, in his glorious person, in the outworking of his labor for your salvation, by faith, you can be rest assured you'll see it by sight in the next life. So, honestly, if you desire to, to grow as a believer, to endure in the the Christian life to persevere, this is a great topic to ponder. So let's look at the 
the text itself. And what you see is that Jesus says, the hour has come. Well, what hour is that? Well, it's the hour of the, to which every facet of his earthly ministry has been moving rapidly. It's the hour of his great suffering. And yet in the midst of that, he says there's a, a reciprocal glory there, a corresponding glory. The glory of the Father, the glory of the Son. And so why is John so concerned with this idea of glory? Indeed, he begins the, the gospel talking about the glory of Christ. If you know John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld the glory. The uh, word there, dwelt, is the word for tabernacle. And so it goes back in the original audience mind, minds, uh, Hebrews and people probably a lot more versed in the Old Testament than we are, would think back to the end of the Exodus and the Pentateuch. And there, as the temple was, tabernacle was erected and the, the priests were assembled and they were all ordained properly and the sacrifices were offered, the Shekinah glory of God fell upon the tabernacle. And what John seems to be indicating here is that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, the Word made flesh, is the true Shekinah glory. I was raised in the church, and I heard that a lot, Shekinah glory, Shekinah glory. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's the glory of God's presence. And in the Gospels, that glory is veiled. What you see when you look at it, and what so many who are unimpressed with Jesus saw was simply a, a rabble-rousing Jewish peasant. But John makes it clear, even from the beginning there in John chapter 2, when he turns the water into wine, there he says, his commentary on it was that was the first manifestation of his glory. All the way to the end where he's there in chapter 11, 11 raising Lazarus from the dead, manifesting the fact that he's just not your average prophet, that indeed he is God in the flesh. But the apex, the pinnacle of that glory is the cross. And so in verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may, be, may glorify you. And so in other words, the, the greater the, the Son's glory, the greater the Father's glory. Now, if you're a parent, you certainly understand this sort of reciprocal glory or Son makes a, a three-point shot with two seconds to go against the, the rival team, and they win the game. There's a certain glory to that, and it reflects well on you. Your child makes a 35 on the ACT or 1600 on the SAT, and they're able to go to any college or university they want to, and most likely their tuition will be covered. There's certain glory to that. They, they're reflecting well on you. Or even more importantly, maybe they marry wisely. Maybe they actually listen to what you say as a parent as you're trying to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And they, they grow to be a godly. That reflects well on you. And that's certainly what in, in an in a, in a, in a ultimate sense is being stated here. But what does this glorification consist of? Notice what he says there in verse 2, that he might give eternal life to all that the Father has given him. It's a bestowal 
of eternal life. It's the securing of salvation by his holy and obedient life, by his wrath-satisfying cross and crucifixion, by his glorious resurrection, he secures eternal life by the cross. That the shameful road that the cross led him was actually the pathway to glory. One of the, my favorite commentators is the Australian Anglican commentator, now deceased, Leon Morris, and he says this, As he came in lowliness, we have an example of the paradox that John uses so forcefully later in the gospel, that true glory is seen not in outward splendor, but in the lowliness which the Son of God lived for men and suffered for them. So what he's saying is, of course, that the ultimate achievement of glory that reflects well upon the Father is that he accomplishes the mission that the Father had given him, which is to give eternal life, which he goes on to define there in verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus, whom you have sent. Allegedly somewhere, and I don't remember where I read this, was John Calvin's favorite verse probably because it gives a description or tells you what eternal life consists in. And it consists in this idea or the verb there in the present tense of knowing God. Again, when you go back all the way back to the garden and you see how Adam and Eve walked with God in, in the glory of paradise, they're knowing him sincerely and deeply, enjoying his fellowship. And all that was severed by their rebellion. The knowledge of God, the privilege of relationship with God was severed and replaced with rebellion and with ignorance. And so eternal life consists in this ever-growing, expanding knowledge about God, not just in this life, but as a finite being, even into eternity, trying to know and go know the infinite. And so it's not just some sort of intellectual exercise. It's not like grasping all the tenets of chemistry or biology or economics. This is the actual real life knowing God that's found exclusively through the knowledge of the Son. So the ultimate question is, who are those who know God in this way through Christ? Who are those that see Jesus' glory, that they value him, whereas the rest of the world passes him by. And the amazing thing about this prayer is quite bluntly, Jesus makes it clear that this knowledge is not uh, inclusive to all, but rather exclusive. In fact, he says it very bluntly there in verse 2, to all that you have given him, who the Father has given the Son. He says it again in verse 6, I manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. In verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I don't ask on behalf of the world, but on those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. He repeats the statement four times in the middle of the prayer. Basically, he's emphasizing 
the, the reality of the nature of the covenant of grace, where the Father in eternity past has gifted the Son with sinners of his mercy, of his compassion. God looks at humanity, and what does he see? He sees a collective uh, fist shaking in his face. And, and mercy, he looks down and he selects those and he gave them to the Son who succeeded in accomplishing their salvation and redemption at the high cost of his blood. The Holy Spirit in time and space applies that salvation. Those given to Jesus and those alone, those who are the recipients of the grace of the triune God, they value Christ. John Calvin in his commentary says this statement, not all receive life from him, nor even is it his office to give life to all, but only to the elect of God, whom the Father is committed to his care. So I ought you to be concerned about the glory of God. Well, because here, what he's saying is, those who are concerned about Jesus' glory are those whom the Father has given the Son. And so what is glory? That which is weighty. That which is worthy of worship. That which is substantial. What do you believe is glorious? Uh, in your own life, you usually order your priorities around. You spend money on. You spend a lot of time with. You build your life around. And you might even say you travel to see or you worship. Years ago, I was coming back from a mission trip and uh, had the misfortune of having to make a transition in Newark, New Jersey, which is the only time I've ever been to that airport, and I hope I never have to go back. And uh, so I was very tired. I'd been up for a long time, and the flight from Newark to Atlanta, uh, I had an older gentleman sit by me, and he was from Michigan. And I don't know much about Michigan other than I was extremely excited. They, their university beat the University of Alabama this year. That was an enormous accomplishment. I know it snows there. I know there's some Dutch people there, but that's about all I know. But he, uh, he was one of these talkative sort of people that just sits next to you and really will not stop talking the whole flight. And he talked to me the whole time about snowmobiling. And that was his great passion. And he, he talked to me about the different types of snowmobiles and his snowmobiling club in Michigan and how in the summers, and it was summertime at that, and he couldn't get wait to go wait to get back up to the upper peninsula of Michigan to his, his snowmobiling camp, and they were going to go ahead and track out new routes and clear new routes and how much consumption gas. I mean, everything you could think of about snowmobiling. And I thought, wow. This guy's life is totally obsessed with snowmobiling. You know, in my understanding, I just like put me in a bed of ants. I'd rather suffer in that way. But isn't that the natural man? You know, you don't have to step three feet outside of your house or in your job or your neighborhood to run into someone that's obsessed in some way about their possessions or about some relationship. And at the end of the day, whether they realize it or not, they're revolving their life around it and they worship it and they glorify it. And so what this text calls you to do is, and it's so easy to be sucked into, we might say, and 
the average Christian life. We all have responsibilities. You've got bills to pay. You have children to take care of. You, you've got all of these duties, and it's so easy to get sucked in and forget about the ultimate things. And so what this text calls you to, it seems to me, as you look to Jesus' prayer, is this has high value in Jesus' mind. For those whom the Father had given him, his desires that they would see, behold, and order their life around the pursuit of his glory. The apostles saw that glory. What did they see? They saw a man who everybody else thought was a fraud and a phony and a poser. He claimed to be the Davidic heir, the Davidic king. Now, I've never seen a king in the first century, and perhaps they hadn't either, but I guarantee you, Jesus did not look like a king in the first century, but he was. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus assumed the role of a slave. He took that posture in his life. His eternal glory was veiled, and sure, it came out at the transfiguration and in his uh, in his miracles, but what they saw, what they heard by the grace of God was the truth. The truth about who they were, the truth about why the world was the way it is, and the truth about how they could get right with him. The, the glory of God is not obvious to all. It's not obvious to all today. But for those who have eyes to see by God's grace, it's there. It's there in Scripture. It's there in creation. God reveals himself there. The glory of God points you at all points to Jesus who's worthy of your worship. But notice the second request that he makes of his father in chapter 4. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Uh, Jesus' task his humiliation as a suffering servant was the job assigned to him by his father, and he's done all of that. And he calls on his father to, to glorify him again. Actually uses the, interestingly, the command in the Greek, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the pre-incarnate glory that he had before the world was brought into existence. And Jesus had honored what his father had told him to do. And now he asked for glory to be returned to him. I was uh, raised in a Christian home, and my, I had a very fine father as a Christian man, but I think he had a real worry as a child. And before I could start working in the summers, he would assign me all sorts of tasks, uh, chores, you might say, while I was off school. and. He was away at work, and one of them was uh, we had a pop-up camper, and he wanted it washed regularly. I must have washed it dozens of times. Everything down to the, the wheels and the hubs, the, the hubcaps, everything about it. Or, you know, hoeing the garden. We had a little vegetable garden, weed-eating a, a drainage ditch in the back of our home. And my father, being the conscientious guy he was, would come home often and from time to time inspect my work. And what I craved more than anything was not more money or allowance. It was just simply his approval that he had given me a task. And because I loved him, I wanted to do that task well. And nothing made me more excited, more thrilled than to have him say, well done, son. That's what I wanted you to do. Jesus isn't requesting compensation. This isn't a 
uh, a reward, the return to his pre-incarnate glory. It's a request that the glory that was veiled in the accomplishment of his mission to save sinners, that glory would become visible again, unrestrained, unlimited, in regal splendor. And so he begins the prayer with this prayer for glory, and he, he closes it in, in verse 24 the same way, where he, he says, Father, I desire also that those whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. That ultimate glory, the elect of God and joy, is known here not by sight yet, but by faith. And you can see that Jesus begins the prayer with glory and he ends the prayer with glory. J.C. Rowell, the great uh, Anglican commentator from the 19th century said, in this verse, our Lord names the fourth and last thing which he desires for his disciples in his prayer. After their preservation, sanctification, unity becomes the participation in his glory. And so it seems to me, as you reflect on the beginning and ending of this prayer of Jesus, the important question to ask is, you know, really, what are you glorifying? What are you building your life around, your priorities, your values, spending your money on? What are you worshiping? It seems to me that this text says of all the necessary duties that you have in your life, the ultimate one ought to be pursuing to see the glory of Christ and the word of God here in the context of the church. Calvin in his commentary says it's obscure though. He says it's like you're in a a dark room and the only light you have is a, a crevice under the door and you can sort of see images in the room because of that faint light. But that's sort of what it is this side by faith seeing the glory of God. The, the desire of the believer, it seems to me, is to study this. And in doing so, that you'll find uh, stability in the Christian life, that you will find the, the, uh, the ability not to lose heart under fatherly discipline, the trials that come your way, not to become a, a bitter, brittle person, not to take for granted all the spiritual privileges that the Lord has brought your way, that if you keep this as the focus, as what Jesus prayed for, as the consummation of his redemptive work in the new heavens and the new earth, that what you know here by faith, you will see there by sight, uninterrupted, unceasing for all eternity. That is bliss. And that's what he labored for by his sufferings, by his death, and by his resurrection. Christ's glory is the consummation of his labors, and in my judgment, ought to be the great study of your life. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the clear word of God. We thank you for this emphasis on the glory of Jesus. We pray that we would see his glory here as we reflect upon these passages that our life would be built around him who you have revealed, 
that we are to worship and adore. Thank you that you have given us a true knowledge of yourself in your son. Please impress these truths on our hearts, we pray in Christ. Amen.